Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. What I will try to do this evening, here in the book of Hosea, by the way, I've entitled the message tonight, Amazing Grace, because I think, I hope that we can see the, the amazing grace of God as we, as we look at this book. I want to survey the entire book, all 14 chapters, which means, of course, I obviously can't read a given passage of scripture, and I'm going to be using the Living Bible tonight because of the the simplicity of the Living Bible as opposed to King James. The King James in the book of Hosea is very hard to understand. And so I'm going to read from the Living Bible to, to make the comments about what I want to say. But uh, you follow, I'm going to tell you where I am most of the time, I hope, so that you can see it there in the King James, but I'll be, be using the, the Living Bible. Uh, Hosea is considered one of the minor prophets, not that he was minor in, in terms of being lesser of importance, less important than, than others, only because of the length of the book. The prophets are divided into the major and the minor prophets. Uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel uh, are all major prophets, and some of the smaller ones Hosea, and Obadiah, and Micah, and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those are considered minor prophets because they are short, not because of the importance of the book. Hosea is one of those, is considered a minor prophet, who uh, was a prophet during the 700 B.C.s, about 750 to in the 720s, he lived in the northern kingdom that he calls in the book Ephraim uh, instead of Israel. And Ephraim was one of the sons, the elder son of Joseph, who received then in his father's name, he and Manasseh, the two boys, received territory in the kingdom when the Hebrew people went back into the promised land. But Hosea has a message, not only for Israel, but I think for us. And as we look at this book, we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see a lot of the personal life of Hosea. Then we're going to see that compared to the life of Israel, and then I want to take that and compare it in many points to our life today. And it, it's all there, and a, a good parallel. But we, we find some things about Hosea that are rather strange from a prophet that uh, God tells him to do in order that God might be able to take the private life of Hosea and say, this is the way my people act. This is, his, this is the point. So think of it in terms of the real, actual life of Hosea being used to 
give us a story of the life of the Hebrew people, and then I want to draw the parallel for today. And we'll read only certain verses, and I'm going to be in verse 2 for the first passage. And you might find this a little difficult to, uh, to pick out of that second verse, but let me tell you what the Living Bible does to, to make some sense out of it. God is speaking to Hosea. This is what God says. Go and marry a girl who is a prostitute, so that some of her children will be born to you from other men. This will illustrate the way my people have been untrue to me committing open adultery against me by worshiping other gods. Now, God told Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. A prophet was instructed to marry a prostitute. In that day, in the pagan temples, they had uh, temple prostitutes as a part of their worship ceremony. And there were always prostitutes in the pagan temples to serve for that purpose as a part of the pagan worship. And God sends Hosea out to find himself a wife from amongst that group of people. For the purpose, he said, so that some of the children that are born will not be your children, but will be children from adultery. That's interesting that he would ask Hosea to do such that. But he says this is going to illustrate the way Israel is relating to me. How your wife is going to relate to you. And they are actually, he says, committing open adultery in how they have selected uh, their God to worship. Now, got the picture? Hosea goes out to marry an adulterer, adulteress, a prostitute, whom God says will not be faithful to you, Hosea. She will still practice her art of prostitution. And as a result of that, she will bear children that will not be yours. Hosea knows that going in, that she's not going to be faithful. She's going to still be a prostitute, even after they're married. But he said, this is the way my people react with me. And he calls them adulterers, not adulterers at all, worshippers of idols. He calls them adulterers in that he says his people treat him, that is God, the same way that Hosea's wife is going to treat Hosea. They're going to be unfaithful. Now, we can see the third part of what I want to say tonight is modern day time, even in the church, as well, of course, as out of the church, there are those people who proclaim a devotion to God, who in fact do not practice that, and go out to conduct themselves uh, in the world in a manner that could be considered practicing adultery if one considers himself as relationship to God. You remember that the church is supposed to be the bride of Christ. And the bride does not remain faithful. 
but goes out and practices all kinds of things contrary to what uh, the, uh, the Lord would want. And so here is setting up the story. And in verse 3, he goes out and does find a girl by the name of Gomer. The only Gomer I know is Gomer Pyle, and he's a man. I don't know any woman named Gomer, but this woman's name was Gomer. Now, to this marriage of a prostitute and a prophet, there is born the first child who God said to uh, Hosea in verse 4, to name him Jezreel. This child belongs to Hosea. Then in verse 6, another child is born. This one is a girl. And God said, name her Loruhamah. Boy, can you imagine naming a girl that? But it means no more mercy. God is saying, now I have been lenient with you, but the birth of this girl is saying, I am running out of patience. I'm going to have no more mercy with my people who are unfaithful. And Hosea is saying to his wife, I'm not going to tolerate any more of you running out on me. And God or Christ is saying to the church, I'm not going to tolerate your leaving me and following other gods. So he has a, a daughter and that means that, uh, that there's going to be no more mercy. Then there is a third child born down in verse uh, 8. This one is a boy. And God says in verse 9, call him uh, Lohami, which means not mine. Now you begin to see the picture. The third child definitely does not belong to Hosea. She has born this child, not of their marriage, but because of the practice of her prostitution, she now has a child. Hosea says, that's not my child. And God is saying, I want to use this to tell you that you Israelites are not my children either. You have not remained faithful to me. You could not have been born of me and be like you are. A child takes on the image of the parents. And Israel didn't look like God in any way, shape, or form. And the church takes on the image of our God. We ought to be a, a mirror of Him and of Christ our Savior. But we often are not. And for someone to look at the church or to a Christian person or a body of Christian people and uh, say, there's the image of God, God would hang his head in shame and say, you don't belong to me. You couldn't possibly, you don't have my image on you. So, we now see a progression. Hosea marries Gomer. And for a while... Uh, at least they have two children that Hosea believes are his, although there seems to be a little question in his mind about the girl that was born, but when it comes to the third one, he's saying, this one doesn't belong to me. And God is saying, this Israel does not belong to me. God is saying, this body, this church, this individual doesn't belong to me. 
because they don't have our image. All right, go to chapter 2. Now, God was speaking to the first boy that was born, Jezreel. And he says, Reday your brother, the brother that is called Loami, which means not mine, rename him. And the name that he's giving is, Now you are mine. Call him Ami, not Loami. And which means, now you are mine. And he said, and rename your sister Ruame instead of no Ruame, because that means pitied. And here comes the image of God out again. He is attempting to make these children his. Although they're born out of wedlock, Hosea is trying to make them his, and God is trying to make Israel his, and he's trying to make us his. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 2 and says, And plead with your mother, for she has already become another man's wife. Here, Gomer does not stay with Hosea, but leaves him and goes and becomes the wife of another man. And God says to the oldest son, go out and plead with your mother that she come back to your father. Beg her to stop her harlotry, to quit giving herself to others. And God is saying to Israel through that, he is begging Israel to be faithful. He is begging the church today to be faithful. Begging the church to be faithful. And this is what this verse is attempting to say. Now all the way to verse 8. She doesn't realize that all she has has come from me. Israel did not realize that all they had had come from God. You and I and the church in general does not realize that who we are and what we are is, as, is a result of God's blessing. And we flaunt it. That's what Gomer was doing. She took the goods that had been provided by Hosea, and she went out and put all of that stuff on pagan idols. She wasted her substance that, she, that had been given by her husband. Israel took the goods that God had provided and went out and laid them at altars of false gods. And so we even yet do today. We waste our substance without recognizing that it is God who gave it we certainly owe our devotion to him all the way down to verse uh, I have to get my glasses changed verse 11 he says I will destroy her vineyards and her orchards here's God getting a little angry here's Hosea expressing if this is the way she's going to be and if she's not going to repent I am going to destroy everything that she has gotten all the gifts that she has received from all of her lovers, I'm going to take that stuff and destroy it. God is saying, if my uh, people, Israel, and my church, if I can make that parallel, if, if they're going to continue this kind of flaunting, this uh, failure to recognize that every, every good thing comes from God above, then I'm going to destroy all that stuff so that there will be nothing left. He's going to punish her. That's what he concludes with in 13. Now, you see the progression? 
God is begging his church and Israel to return to him. And he is reminding us that everything that we have came from him, and if we continue to abuse that blessing and throw it away, that he's going to punish us. Many, 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 many nations in history have been punished by God because of their failure to be faithful to him. The United States has probably escaped mostly to this point. But I wonder how long can it possibly be that we're going to escape the wrath of God upon us when we continue, continue, continue to flaunt uh, all the blessings that we have received. And God is going to finally say, that's enough, I'm going to punish that nation for their unfaithfulness. But he doesn't stop there. In the very next verse, 14, he says, I will court her again. I may punish her and destroy all of the goods she received, but I'm going to go back and try to win her back. That's exactly what Hosea did. He went out and pleaded with his wife to come back to him. Verse, or, yeah, chapter 3, very first verse says that. Then the Lord said to me, Go and get your wife again and bring her back to you and love her, even though she loves adults. It would take a great man, it would seem to me, and also a great woman, who would be willing to go out and beg their husband or wife to return to them who have been living in this kind of uh, atmosphere. But that's exactly what Hosea did, and he does it as a reflection of God. Even though Israel and the church today has slaughtered him, has abused the privilege, he still is trying to woo us back, to win us back. Why? Because the Lord still loves Israel, though she has turned to other gods and offered them choice gifts. Here's one thing that you can take to the bank. We might forsake God, but God never forsakes us. We might sin against him with all kinds of sin, but God will never his back upon us. He might punish us. He might be angry with us. But in all of that, he will reach out with open arms and receive back again the wayward church or the wayward person or the wayward nation. That's exactly what he was trying to say here in chapter 3. Go to verse or chapter 4. I don't know how this reads in the King James. It's been a little while since, a few days since I read it. But let me read the uh, Living Bible. The Lord has filed a lawsuit against you, listing the following charges. Now, here are the charges that the Lord has filed against us. Against Israel, there is no faithfulness, no kindness, and no knowledge of God in your land. Those are three tremendous charges that God makes against the land of Israel, and then against us. There is no faithfulness, no kindness, and no knowledge of God. Consider those three charges in today's world. We are a world almost of faithlessness. We are a world without kindness. Certainly, we're a world that doesn't know too much about the knowledge of God. Then he goes on and says, You swear 
and you lie, and you kill, and steal, and commit adultery. There's violence everywhere, with one murder after another. There's more murders in the United States in one year than were killed in the worst year of the Korean War. People killing each other. There is violence, and we are acquainted with it everywhere. It is nothing for people to steal and kill the lies, to swear. This is common language. You can't go a day out in public without hearing swear words. You cannot take anybody, it seems, anymore, at least a few people, at the word. It means nothing. Person in general. Then he says in the third verse, this is why, this is why your land is not producing. This is why it's filled with sadness, and all living things grow sick and die. The animals and the birds and even the fish begin to disappear. There's been a tremendous alarm sounded by environmentalists in recent years and growing stronger every day that we as human beings are killing off God's creation. Animal species are becoming extinct. It is nothing to have the oil spills and the other tragedies that take the life of a fish or birds or other, other wildlife. The Alaskans spill, for good example. And he says in verse 4, don't point your finger at everyone else. Try to pass the blame to him. I am pointing my finger at you. He's talking to Israel. He's talking to us. The first thing that a person does, it seems, is when they are caught up in all of these things that were listed there, they start pointing the finger and say, well, it's somebody else's fault. That guy caused me to do it. My wife was instrumental in getting me into this. This is what Adam said about Eve, and it's been true ever since. We've got a way of pointing somebody else and saying, they're the ones that caused it. You ought to punish them uh, right down the line. Uh, we are not willing, as a, in a general sense, to stand up and admit that we have done wrong and take our punishment for it. But God is still pointing the finger, and he will not allow us to escape without recognizing that we are the guilty ones. All right, over to verse 11 of chapter 4. When he, and this is a familiar phrase, lying women and song have robbed my people of their brains. <laughs> I, I think that's a good one in the, in the Living Bible. I don't know what it says there in the King James. But lying women and song have robbed my people of their brains. And I think we probably would have to agree with that. All the way then down to verse, uh, in the middle of verse 13. Your daughters turn to prostitution and your brides commit adultery. But why should I punish them, verse 14, for you men are doing the same thing, sitting with harlots and temple prostitutes. Here comes the double standard. This is the thing that Jesus faced in the, the woman I talked about this morning who had been taken to the act of adultery. Everybody wanted to punish the woman and nobody brought the man for the same punishment. The law did not make the woman more guilty than the man. Both the law said it had to be stoned to death if they were caught in adultery. 
But they had excused the man and let him go and simply brought the woman. And so it is that uh, he's saying here that, that the double standard is not going to stand in God's eyes. Whatever is wrong for the daughters is going to be wrong for the, uh, uh, the, the boys or the men. There is no double standard. And he makes it quite clear. Now, I'm going to quickly go to the end of chapter 5, uh, the very last phrase in it, on the last verse of chapter 5, when he says, And as soon as trouble comes, they will search for me. Well, that's basically true. People are going to go out and do all kinds of things, but just let trouble hit. Let sickness lay them on the flat of their back. Let all of these things take place. And man, so let's think about God and call on God and say, why did you allow this to happen to me? Listen, God does not cause a lot of things that we go through. He may allow it, that is, he didn't stop the process. We set it in motion. We will have to stop the action if we want anything corrected. We cannot call on God to stop us. And expect him to do so if we have flaunted his law. If we want to set something in motion, he, the, the, the person who plays pays, they say, and that is exactly true. But as soon as trouble hits, people want to start turning to God. First of all, we blame God. And then secondly, when we get done doing that, when we recognize that we're the guilty party, because of these facts, and the fear of what the future is, then we turn to God and start calling on him, and beginning of verse 6, they say, come and let us return to the Lord. If we ever had, in our day and time, foreign soldiers on our soil, this church would have a lot more people in it. Those of you who can remember back during the First and Second World Wars, I can't. I can remember a little of the Second World War. It wasn't difficult to get people to church, as it is today. So, as soon as trouble hits, everybody says, come on, let's go back to church. And then he laments in verse 4, and he calls Israel Ephraim. He said, oh, Ephraim and Judah, what shall I do with you? You can almost hear God lamenting. What am I going to do with you? You're wayward in all of this. Verse uh, 6. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. Now, man doesn't think the way God thinks. Man thinks, I know what I'll do in the Old Testament. I'll sacrifice. I, I've sinned. I'll take my lamb and I'll go up to the temple and I'll have the priest sacrifice it. And that'll get me all cleared up. Man today says, I know what I'll do. I'll change my ways and I'll start going to church. I'll start doing this and doing that and doing something else. And God says, I don't want you to do things. I want you to love me. That's what I want. And others will say, well, I know. I'll, uh, I'll start giving more to church. You know, if people could buy their way into heaven, the church would never have any problem with money. We'd have plenty of it. But some people still think, well, I gave to the church. That ought to 
account for something. And he said, I don't want your money. God doesn't have any need of money. What did he say? I want you to know me. That's what I want. All right, down to chapter 7. He says, I wanted to forgive Israel, but her sins were far too great. I just couldn't do it, is what he's saying. I really want to forgive you, Israel, but your sins are so great, I can't forgive you unless something takes place. Verse 2, her people never seem to recognize, and I'm watching them. Their sinful deeds give them away on every side, and I see them all. I don't know why it is that we are so stupid to think that we can sin and God never sees it. I don't know why. We make every effort to hide it from each other. And all the same time, God is seeing every iota of every deed. He says, her people never seem to recognize that I'm watching. God is watching. The sinful things give them away. All right. Over... Uh, Chapter 7, uh, verse 8. My people mingle with the heathen, picking up their evil ways. Thus they become a good for nothing, as they become as good for nothing as a half-baked cake. Now, I don't know, uh, again, what this is the King James, but this is interesting to me. A couple of things in this verse. My people mingle with the heathen. Now, I have said to a number of people, uh, and at least one person in this congregation who is, who is not here tonight, but who has discussed this subject with me as to what to do about mingling with the unsaved. We certainly must mingle with the unsaved. We cannot avoid it, number one. And secondly, we need to mingle with the unsaved in order to influence them for Christ to give them the message that the church has, that the Lord wants them saved, and so on. But the problem comes in that, according to this verse, we pick up their evil ways. In other words, the influence has been reversed. We are influenced by the world instead of influencing the world. And I said to one person who wanted to know about this, I said, now listen. You are very dangerous ground. When you see that you're being influenced more than you are influencing, it's time to get out of the picture. It's time to get away. Don't stay there if you can't be dominant in the influence. If you're not going to bring them to church, for goodness sakes, get away so that they don't take you with them. And I think it's important. And most of us, mingle so freely with the wicked of the world that they are more influential than we. And this is dangerous. And that's what God was telling Israel. And as a result of this uh, influence of the world upon us, he says that we become good for nothing as a half-baked cake. Now, there's not a lot of you women that would bring a half-baked cake to a supper. As a matter of fact, Father's Day, Cricket made a cake, and it fell. 
And Robert was with us, and he and I had cake. Nobody saw it here. It was one of those flops. I liked it. When I was tall, I was in love when my mother made a flop. But I got the whole thing. I can't get the whole thing anymore. But uh, good for nothing. That's what he says his own people become when we are more influenced by the world than we influence. Verse uh, 13. He says, I want to redeem them, but their hard hearts would not accept the truth. I hope we realize that God is continually wanting to save people. He says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants them all saved, but he can't. He cannot save those whose hearts will not accept the truth. He just can't do it. He self-limited himself. God gave man something that God himself does not have in that case. The ability to be saved. God cannot save a person who doesn't want to be. Who won't accept the truth. Then he goes on in verse 14 and says, They lie there sleepless with anxiety and they won't ask for help. Now I'm awful guilty here, and maybe some of you are as well. Laying asleep at night, staring at the ceiling with eyes wide open, Tossing and fretting and tossing and turning, trying to make up our mind, my mind, about something that is bothering me. And he says, and I won't ask for help. Are you guilty of that? What do you think God is doing up there in heaven? He's there to lend a hand to his children. And we won't even ask him. Isn't that amazing? Then he goes on in verse 15, so I have helped them. And made them strong, and yet they turn against me. They look everywhere except the heaven, the most high God. How many times has God helped you and me, and we don't even acknowledge that he did it? It just sort of happened that way, we say. Things just fell into place. Uh, I had a streak of good luck. No, no. We don't have good or bad luck. Those good things that come to us come from the hand of God. And if things fall in place for us, it's because we have yielded ourselves to God and God has performed something in our lives. And when that happens, let's give God the credit. Instead of saying, well, I sure did it that time. No, no, we didn't do it at all. It was God working us. Chapter 8. Sound the alarm, he starts off. They're coming. Sounds like the, the opening for one of these alien uh, movies. Uh, we're going to be invading from outer space, but that's what he says. Sound the alarm, they're coming like a vulture. The enemy descends upon the people of God. That is exactly what is happening today. Satan is bombarding the church like he has never done it before. Because I believe that he recognizes that his time to do damage is very short. The return of the Lord is surely not far off. He is increasing his efforts to destroy us as individuals and to destroy the church. He's bombarding us. 
And God shouts to Isaiah and tells him to sound the alarm. Let the people know that they're being bombarded. And in verse uh, 2 he says, And now Israel pleads with me and says, Help us, for you're our God. Here we go. All through all this stuff of being immoral, being wayward, worshiping other gods, and all the things that Israel did, and so we do similar things, and then we cry, God help us! We're about ready to go under. And verse 7 says, And they have sown the wind, and then reaped the whirlwind. You've heard that all your life, and right here's where it comes from. When you, uh, well, you can gather your own conclusions on that, and we'll not take the time now. Go on down to verse 12. He says, even if I gave her 10,000 laws, she'd say they weren't for her. Uh, this is an interesting verse. He'd say they are appointed to someone far away. Verse, that's verse 12. Even if I gave her 10,000 laws, she'd say they weren't for her. Israel, if, if God gave Israel 10,000 laws, Israel would say, oh, those don't, those don't apply to us. Those apply to that other nation over there. That's what we yet do when we read something in the Bible then we say, oh, that doesn't apply. In my case, I am an exception. You see, my circumstances dictate that it's okay for me. It's not okay for anybody else, but you see, you don't understand. My circumstances says that I must do that. And if God gave us 10,000 commandments, we'd say, oh, they belong to somebody else, not to me. I had trouble, you know, I've never had preached from Hosea before. This is the first time I've ever used Hosea. I had trouble deciding to do it or not because there's too much stuff in here that, that gets right down where I live. I have trouble with it. And that's why I have trouble with it. We can rationalize ourselves into thinking that anything we want to do is right because God's law just in this case doesn't apply. All right. Now, go over to the last verse of chapter 9, verse 17. My God will destroy the people of Israel because they will not listen or obey. They will be wandering Jews homeless among the nations. Well, that, certain, that prophecy certainly has come true. The Jews are wandering all over the world. They became a nation again back in 48. But for, for the most part, they are wandering all over the world. We have Jews everywhere. They just uh, uh, don't... Uh, have a place to call home. He said, my God will destroy Israel. Why? Here's the reason. Because they won't listen or obey. Parallel that to the third stage that I'm talking about, Hosea, Israel, and the church today. Is that not true? We will not listen or obey. Chapter 10. Beginning in the middle of the first verse, but the more wealth I give her, the more she spurns it on the altars of her heathen gods, and the riches, the richer the harvest I give her, the more beautiful the statutes and idols she erects. This was true. The richer Israel got, the more Israel spent on idols. The richer Israel got, the more she spent on building statues and buildings, named them after somebody. The wealthier we get, the fancier. We grow in our way of living. There really is little point, probably, in a person getting a raise 
Because all we do when we get the raise is add that to our standard of living, and we spend that just the same, and we're in the same boat, we still don't have anything, you know, for the most part. I keep telling Cricket that all the time. I bring a dollar, and we spend a dollar and a half, and I don't understand how that happens. But this is the way we live. Don't tell her I said that, but I have said that. Now, Verse 4, they make promises they don't intend to keep. This is what Israel was doing. Oh, Lord, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life, so help me God. Ever heard that phrase? God, you get me out of this hospital back on my feet, and I'll go to church next Sunday. I'll serve you faithfully. I promise you, on a stack of Bibles ten feet tall, and as soon as the crisis is over, I don't even remember saying such a thing. But God didn't forget that promise. He never forgot. All right, over to chapter 11. Got to quit here pretty quick. How shall I give you up? This is God lamenting. He doesn't want to give up Israel. How's he going to do it? How can I let you go? You can see that, that Hosea is saying the same thing to Gomer. I don't want to give you up. How can I let you go? How can I forsake you? God is saying to Israel, I don't want to give you up. I don't want to let you go. God is saying to the church, I just can't let you go. I can't forsake you. What can I do to win you back? Uh, down in verse 9, no, I will not punish you as much as my fierce anger tells me to. God is merciful, and here's the amazing grace. We deserve death. But God won't put us to death. He will be merciful to us. He's not going to punish us as much as we deserve. Chapter 12, verse 6. Oh, come back to God. Here's a, a plea. Oh, come back to God. Live by the principles of love and justice. And always be expecting much more from him, your God. A plea. Come back to God, God says. Live by the principles of love and justice. Listen, if we live by those two principles, there would never be the wars and the fusses and the disagreements that go on in our world. If we live by love and justice, if every husband and wife treated each other with love and justice, if every uh, official was treated by the people in, in the society and the reverse with love and justice, if we in the church treated each other with love and justice, there would never be any difficulties in our midst. And that's what he pleads for, that you would come back to God. All right, chapter 13. One verse, the first verse. He says, it used to be when Israel spoke, the nation shook with fear, for he was a mighty prince. But he worshipped Baal and sealed his doom. And now, verse 2, and now the people disobey more and more. I want you to consider what that really is saying. It used to be when the nation of Israel spoke, people listened. They shook with fear because they knew that God was the God of Israel and would bless Israel. But Israel turned to worship Baal. And what happened then when she turned to worship Baal? She sealed her own doom. She appeared to all 
nations as people who, who were not faithful and therefore could not be depended upon, nor respected. This happens with you and with me and with the church. It used to be that when the church spoke, the nation stood up and listened. But we have lost that power in the United States and in most nations of the world, and we're looked upon as people who don't practice what they preach. And therefore, our uh, message is weak and ignored and laughed at, simply because we have turned from serving God and we have turned to serve Baal, so to speak. The word Satan and as a consequence, the peoples of the nation just disobey more and more. We have the highest membership today in churches that has ever been, a percentage-wise, number-wise both, ever been in the, in the history of our nation. More people belong to church. That ought to say something. But we have more dope, more prostitution, more alcoholism, more anything you want to name in our world today, in our United States, and ever in our history, there's something wrong when the church numbers are here and all of the immoral and, and illegal numbers are up there with them. It ought to be the church numbers here and that stuff down here. But it's not true. And in the last issue of the West Virginia ba or the American Baptist magazine that I get, the whole issue is, is dealing with drugs and how the church ought to relate to drugs. It's become such a monumental issue. In our churches, people are drug addicts as well as out in society. I learned the hard way one time that the wife of one of my deacons was, was a drug addict and one of the other women of the church is the one who gave her the shots. It took me a long time to figure out what was going on. Otherwise, well, the woman was crazy all the time, and I found to figure it out. It's amazing that even within the church, we have these issues to deal with. Verse 14, or chapter 14, we'll complete. Another lament, similar to chapter 12, verse 6, when he says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. Return to God. And then the conclusion, uh, 8 and 9. O Ephraim, Stay away from idols. I am living and strong. I look for you, I look after you, and care for you. I'm like an evergreen tree, yielding my fruit to you throughout the year. My mercies never fail. This is God talking. Hear what he said? He pleads with the church, with Israel, to stay away from idols. He says, I'm living, I'm strong. We don't serve a dead God. We strong serve a living God. I look after you and I care for you. It's like an evergreen tree. It is always there, always green. I give you my fruit all year long. In verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is intelligent, let him listen. For the path of the Lord are true and right, and good men walk along them. But sinners trying it will fail. That last phrase is very important. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and good men walk along them. But sinners try it.
will fail. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.